0: Chapter 10. With God's help, we'll be considering verses 32 to 36 on the subject of compassion for prisoners. If you're visiting with us this morning, you are arriving in the tail end of a sermon series that we've called 117 Learn to Do Justice. Uh, if you need a Bible this morning or a couple brothers holding uh, and sisters holding up uh, Bibles in the back there, just raise your hands and we'd be happy to provide you a Bible so you can follow along with us. You'll be helped in the sermon if you do so. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, we would like this to be our gift to you. So please accept this as our gift and uh, treasure it, we pray, the way we treasure it as God's people. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. As I said, you're at the tail end of a sermon series that we've called 117, Learn to Do Justice, where we as a congregation have been trying to think about what the Bible teaches with regard to justice uh, and trying to get a biblical understanding of a word that's much misunderstood and sometimes much vilified, uh, oddly enough, uh, in some Christian circles. And we've been wanting to do this so that we might think this thing through biblically and with God's grace and help learn to live more faithfully as Christian disciples in the way that the Lord has called us to. It's been the first half of the series thinking through this in broad theological terms. And we spent the second half of the series thinking about particular uh, what might be called justice issues and trying to bring the Bible to bear on those issues so that we think about them as Christians and with God's help, again, we act upon them as Christians. And this morning we've come to this issue of incarceration. In 1971, President Nixon declared a war on drugs. He dramatically increased the size and the spending of of federal drug control agencies and pushed through a series of uh, measures such as mandatory sentencing and no-knock warrants. That was really the first wave of uh, our modern sort of war against drugs. A Nixon aide would later say, John Ehrlichman, You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That's the admission of John Ehrlichman, a top aide to President Richard Nixon. The quote there captures the combination of a couple of powerful forces, public attitude and public policy. There's a symbiotic relationship between attitude and policy. And oftentimes, if you can change the mood of a public, it's much easier to change the policy that affects at least some quarters of the public. Our country's anti-drug and criminal justice policies have often been targeted to specific ethnic groups. So, the first anti-opium laws in the 1870s were directed at Chinese immigrants. The first anti-cocaine laws in the early 1900s were directed at black men in the South. The first anti-marijuana laws in the Midwest and Southwest in the 1910s and 1920s were directed at Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans. Today, Latino and especially black communities are still subject to wildly disproportionate drug enforcement and sentencing practices. Even our conversation today about the opioid epidemic is targeted to ethnically white people. There's a radical difference, though. In all those other targetings of drug policy, the policies were punitive. In our targeting of opioid use, it's treatment. has a lot to do with our attitudes toward those people, our policies, target. So we have a system of criminalization that leads to significant differences in arrests, prosecutions, and imprisonments. We have a system of criminalization that in its attitudes criminalize people of color and behaviors associated with people of color and then by by the sort of means of public policy disproportionately influence punishment as justice. From 1980 to 2008, the number of people incarcerated in the United States quadrupled from roughly 500,000 to 2.3 million people in the world. They're not tracking with me on the slides. In 1980, 40,000 people were incarcerated in the United States for for drug offenses across federal, federal, state, and local levels. But in 2015, that number had grown to nearly 500,000, a a 1,048% increase over those 35 years. Now, here's what's interesting over those 35 years. They had both Republican and Democrat administrations stirring the public attitude to be tough on crime. Never mind the fact that crime was actually declining in the country through that same period. The result is this tough on crime rhetoric, this tough on crime policy apparatus aimed at black and brown neighborhoods is this skyrocketing of incarceration. So that one in four African-American men at some point will come in contact with the criminal justice system, usually for what used to be regarded as petty crimes. We're to the point now where the United States holds 25% of the world's prisoners, only though we only represent 5% of the world's population. We incarcerate more people in this country than any place in the world. Our closest competitor? Russia. After them, South Africa. Now, just think about what they all have in common. The regimes there. Now, one of the major contributors to what we call mass incarceration is the school-to-prison pipeline. School-to-prison pipeline refers to the links between zero-tolerance policies coupled with things like school policing, to the expulsion of students from schools, usually again for relatively minor infractions, chewing gum, violating dress codes, public displays of affection. And that expulsion from school brings those students into contact with, guess what? Police and criminal justice. In fact, for many of the minor infractions that take place in school under zero tolerance uh, policies, um, there is a direct reporting of that student, not to the principal alone, And not to their parents alone, but to police authorities. We have criminalized school behavior that used to be regarded as the everyday nuisances of going to school. What's the result? This policy, the zero-tolerance approach, occurs at the same time that mass incarceration is is ramping up, the mid-1990s, when the, the country was rightfully concerned, as we ought to be today, about school shootings and school violence. Move to this zero tolerance, tolerance policy. And while we're expelling more kids and suspending more kids, kids are not safer in schools. We've had almost 20 mass school shootings in the country this year alone. There's no research evidence that this approach is actually making kids safer. I'll tell you what it is doing. million suspensions and over 100,000 expulsions occur every year. This number has doubled since 1974. Rising rates of the use of expelling students and suspending students are not connected to higher rates of misbehavior. So if bad behavior isn't going up, but suspensions and expulsions are going up, What's going on? It is the overly punitive approach to justice that's driving these things up. Once a child drops out, they're eight times more likely to be incarcerated than youth who graduate from high school. Studies have found that 68% of all males in state and federal prison do not have a high school diploma and a great number of the persons affected by the school-to-prison pipeline and and wind up as uh, figures in our mass uh, incarceration statistics, have some kind of disability. So we are being punitive in our orientation toward those with disabilities, black and brown kids, in disproportionate rates. Let me read this quote to you. The U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights issued a brief in 2014 outlining the current disparities. Black students are suspended and expelled at a rate three times greater than white students. The Advancement Project found that in 2006-2007 school year, there was no state in which African-American students were not suspended more often than white students. On average, 5% of white students are suspended compared to 6% of black students for the same kinds of infractions. Black students represent 16% of student enrollment, and 27% of students referred to law enforcement, and 31% of students subjected to a school-related arrest. Combined, 70% of students involved in in-school in, in school arrests or referred to law enforcement combined are black or Latino, 70%. And the majority of these arrests are under zero tolerance policies. This is how we've gotten where we are. There are three questions raised by this research and data. Number one, what, if anything, can Christians and churches do to reverse this trend? How can we get back upstream to do some fixing? Number two, what, if anything, can Christians and churches do to serve people while they are incarcerated? So what can we do midstream? And number three, what, if anything, should Christians and churches do to help those returning to the community? from incarceration. That's downstream. To answer any of these questions effectively, we've got to begin with biblical teaching about Christian responsibility toward people in prison. We've got to have an attitude check, and we've got to be prepared for action. If you're taking notes, I want to point out five things from Hebrews 10 that I hope help us. When we look at Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 20, 36, excuse me, we'll see five things about the early church, five things they knew. Number one, the early ch- church knew it was saved. We'll see that in verse 32. Number two, the early church knew suffering, knew what it was to suffer. Number three, the early church knew solidarity, how to stand in solidarity with others. Number four, the church New sacrifice. The church, church new sacrifice. And number five, the church, church new striving. How to strive. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Father, we pray that you would help us now to hear your word, and respond to your word, to obey your word. We pray that you'd help us now to make a difference as Christians, as your people, as it relates to justice on this subject. Give us wisdom, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. First thing to see about the early church. The church knew it was saved. You see it there in verse 32? But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Now, don't, don't think that's just a throwaway sort of start to the sentence. One of the most vital aspects of Christian living is remembering what we used to be and what we were saved from. Remembering is critical to Christian living. So he points them back to their former days they former days of sin and life apart from Christ. And then he reminds them that they have been enlightened. A, a word that the writer of Hebrew uses to refer to coming to understand who Jesus Christ is and coming to understand that in a saving way. Coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being, being saved, as we would say, from God's wrath in judgment. So he's reminding these people, you need to know who you were saved from. You were saved from God. In his anger against you and your sin. And he's reminding them of what they were saved for. They were saved for God. They would say for his love, for fellowship with him, to to enjoy him and to commune with him for all of eternity. He, he sang to them, a church in the letter of Hebrews that is tempted to turn back away from the faith to their former way of life. No, 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 no. Remember when you were enlightened. Christian, when's the last time you thought actively about the fact that you were saved? When's the last time you traveled back in your mind to your former days. To the days when you didn't know Jesus, but you did know sin. To the days when couldn't nobody tell you nothing because you thought you knew everything. And you were delighting in sin and chasing sin and hanging out in the company of others who delighted in sin and chased in sin. Even if you were trying to be all respectable on the outside, looking back, you know you were rotting on the inside. When the last time you remember those days? And when's the last time you sat down and pondered this miraculous fact? You were in darkness, and then you were enlightened. God turned on the light. God showed you some things, both about yourself and about Jesus. He showed you your sin, but in his kindness, he also showed you that Jesus is the Savior that rescues you from your sin. That he went to Calvary's cross, not because of sins he had done, but he went to Calvary's cross. It dawned on you for you. Because of the sins you had done. And he died to death. You and I should have died in our place. And all of God's anger, (laughs) you were enlightened to see, was poured out on the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. When's the last time you thought about that? And that by that act of sacrificing himself on the cross, and three days later, by the Father raising him from the dead, you and I were saved. Don't you ever forget that if you're a Christian. It's what makes you the most exquisite creature in creation. That God has loved you and sent his son for you and rescued your life from the pit this church is being reminded that they were saved. And we need to be reminded sometimes too, don't we? Let me tell you something. To live the Christian life energetically, zealously, purposefully, we got to keep remembering that we're saved people. I don't know about you, but Christians, this Christian leaks. That stuff that God pours into him, that somehow just kind of leaks out over time. And I find myself just kind of coasting, just kind of living, assuming, taking for granted. And and, and sometimes the Lord has to shake a brother and say, no, 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 no. You need to actively lay hold to this truth again that I am yours and you are mine, that you were bought with a price and I love you and you are called to serve me. When was the last time You remembered that you saved, rescued, bought by Christ's blood, and kept for Christ's glory. And so much of the Christian life depends upon this this work of remembering. I'm going to give you a couple of texts here. You can turn with me if you like. And just see how this, this issue of remembering that you're saved changes our experience of the Christian life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul writes there, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's bad news. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the Bible says this, and such were some of you. I like that God adds that to the Word, because we can read that list as Christians and be thinking, such is some of them. And God said, no, 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 such were some of you. I'm talking about you, Right? That's what you need to remember in your former days, that you were drunkards and thieves and liars and swindlers and immoral in all kinds of ways. And then the Bible goes on to say this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see how the Bible teaches us to think about our lives? It divides our life, the timeline of our life, in this way. We go from birth and we're traveling along, and somewhere in the timeline, we are intercepted by the gospel. And we're able to look back on that old stuff and say, that's what some of us were, but now we've been made new. We've been cleansed. We've been washed. We've been justified. We've been sanctified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And remembering that will set you free. When you're dealing with condemnation and guilt, and you're struggling with the ghosts of sinner past, remembering the butt of Scripture, you were washed and justified and sanctified will change your outlook on who you are and what you're becoming. Let me give you another text, because some of y'all ain't convinced. Second Peter, chapter one, verses five to 10. Apostle Peter right there to the churches spread out all over Asia, wanting Christians all over Asia and all over the world to, to know how to live as Christians. He says this beginning in verse five, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge And knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an encouragement. Add to your faith all these virtues and you're going to be fruitful. And you're going to have an abundant interest in the kingdom of God. Now, Peter then does this thing about remembering, except he does it in the negative. He does it in the reverse. He says in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You know, you can forget that you're cleansed. And it's a horrible spiritual experience to forget that you're cleansed, to be so nearsighted that all you see is your sin and you can't get your eyes up to see Calvary, to be so nearsighted that all you see is your fault and you can't see that fountain open wide where the blood of Christ flows and washes us. And Peter says, no, get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes up to Jesus. And And see see that that you have been been cleansed. Don't Don't you ever forget forget that. that. And then he gives the instruction in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your call in the election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Don't forget you're a Christian. Don't forget you're saved. Because in remembering that fact, you steady your feet so that you don't fall and you don't forget that you've been cleansed. Now, why am I emphasizing all this? Well, first of all, because that's what's in the text. You ever looking for a church home, be sure the brother is telling you what's in the Bible. But secondly, I'm stressing this because I suspect that the radical experience of conversion, of having been enlightened, of having been cleansed and washed, does not deeply enough define who we are as Christians. If we are Christians, we must think of ourselves as having crossed the line once and for all from the former things into the new things. We have to understand this enlightenment as having brought us out of, if you're a Stranger Things fan, out of the upside down. Out of all of that upside twisted darkness into the light of the glorious gospel of the Son of Jesus Christ. Or, if you don't like Stranger Things like me, that's so creepy, man. Here's another creepy one for you. It's remembering that we have been enlightened that brings us out of the sunken place. I ain't seeing that one either. That's crazy too. But, but look, in all seriousness, we look out on the church world. I'm, I'm convinced I'm looking at a lot of churches that are in the sunken place. Some worldly spirit lusting for political power or political acceptability or something else has inhabited the body of Christ and is controlling that body for its own worldly gain. If that's what the sunken place is, I think there are a lot of folks, metaphorically, in the Christian church, so inhabited and controlled by some other spirit other than the spirit of Christ. So we got to be clear that we have been enlightened and we have crossed the line and we are saved because that's going to define how we live this Christian life and whether we live like we are cleansed people, justified people, sanctified people, serving Christ faithfully as his people. And the other reason why I stress this is because you may be here this morning and you are not saved. You are in danger. You are in danger of God's righteous, holy, and true judgment. At the end of the age will be the greatest mass incarceration in human history. When God the judge will sentence sinners to eternal hell and judgment. There is only one way of escape From the judgment of God. That is if Christ takes his judgment in your place. And you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turning away from sin and following him in the obedience that comes from faith as your God and your Savior. Beloved, you can cross the line. And you can be enlightened. If you would confess your sins to God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him in faith. And the verdict on the day of judgment will not be condemned, but forgiven, righteous, justified. And the wonderful thing about that verdict is you don't have to wait to that day to live in that freedom. If you have been enlightened, you live this day in that freedom and that righteousness that is yours by Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we we want you to cross the line. We want you to come into this enlightenment and be saved from God's judgment and be saved for God's love. Don't leave today without us helping you to understand that. Talking with the Christian friend who brought you or talking with someone here who Looks like maybe they understand this message. Let us, let us help you understand it too. And so be enlightened. And so be saved. Now, Christian, I want to make one quick application to the topic of mass incarceration, school-to-prison pipeline, Caring for prisoners from this fundamental knowledge that we are saved. I want to make this application in a quote from Nicholas Reed, who is a professor of Old Testament and ancient near Eastern Studies at Reformed Theological Seminary. He did his earlier work on um, the history of prisons in the ancient world. He made this statement the other day that I found provocative and helpful. As he summarized his own research, he says this, prisons are places where Christians are sent, not places where Christians send people. If there's something in our thinking that's more fundamentally eager to send people to prison than to go to prison ourselves, either for the witness of Christ or to serve those in prison, then something's wrong in our thinking. We are perhaps more political than theological. And we need to reverse that. Which brings us to our second point. The church knew suffering. The church knew suffering. The early church did. Verse 32 again. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Notice the phrasing. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. There are two things there. There were the sufferings, plural. You see that S on the end? That's one thing, but there was also a hard struggle with the sufferings. You know, sometimes you struggle while you're struggling. Sometimes it's hard when you're in a hardship. It's not just the hardship itself. It's not just the struggle itself, but it's the other things also around it that come along with it that just pinch upon your soul and your mind and your body. Now, I want you to notice notice something. something. They struggled after they were enlightened. That's right. Amen. Amen. Come on, preacher. Come on. The Bible is not offering you your best life now. That's right. Say it again. The Bible is not offering you your best life now. If you follow Jesus, you may find that life just got hard. And this won't make any sense to you. This won't be of any attraction to you unless Jesus is more beautiful to you and more wonderful to you than anything else that's happening in your life. If Christ is your all, you're happy to have Christ along with the persecutions, along with the sufferings, along with the compounding hardships, because Christ is your joy. There are some people who turn back because it gets hard. They're the seed that fall on the stony ground. They're the seed that the birds pluck up. Life gets hard. Love for the world gets strong. Love for Jesus gets weak and they go back. We don't want to be that. And this book here, Hebrews, is written to encourage Christians who were tempted to turn back because life had gotten hard. It says, listen, you were enlightened and then you suffered. And with the suffering were also hardships. You had to endure it. Christian, if we pursue comfort without suffering, or if we expect that when we suffer, God is always somehow going to make it easy for us in the suffering, we are setting ourselves up for a rude awakening. Because this text says, You will have sufferings, and you will have hardships with the sufferings. So, beloved, when we call you to follow Jesus, we're not calling you to come get some easy, quick fix for whatever's troubling you. We're calling you to come meet God. And what we're telling you is, he's worth it. He's far, far, far more valuable than anything that might keep you from him. Whether it's good or whether it's suffering. Jesus is worth it. Give your life to him and follow him. Someone has once said that one of the greatest defects in western theology is the absence of a theology of suffering. I think that's right. And ironically, in a theology that thinks it's all about being gospel-centered, it somehow fails to realize that we serve a suffering Savior. And that if his life is entered into ours, and ours has been joined to him, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, his sufferings will overflow in our lives. It is perhaps the case that the church does not understand the gospel deeply enough at this point. John Calvin writing said this, Nobody is fit to preach the gospel in a hostile world unless his mind has been prepared for suffering. Therefore, if we are to prove ourselves faithful ministers of Christ, not only must we seek him for the spirit of knowledge and of wisdom, but also for the spirit of steadfastness and of courage so that we may never be broken by desperate suffering for it is the lot of the godly. We have been appointed with Christ to suffer. And think about how much of our attitudes with regard to policing and incarceration is fueled by a desire for us to not suffer. We don't don't use that phrase. We use phrase phrase like safe. We want to be safe. That's just a positive way of saying we don't want to be inconvenienced or suffer. And so remove those people who make us a little scared. We've not been given a spirit of fear. Remember what Ken Witsma said in pursuing justice. Justice is something we wouldn't choose And it does not usually occur on our terms. Justice makes strong demands. So if we're going to make a dent in mass incarceration and we're going to hear the call of justice, we we had better be prepared to suffer and hear the demands of justice and enter into it like Christians who remember they are saved and that they're called to suffer. Which brings us to the third point. The early church knew solidarity and knew something about solidarity. Now, How does the writer of Hebrews know that these folks understood suffering? How will we know that we understand suffering? We'll see so in that, that next phrase is, there, he, he saw their solidarity with Jesus, and he saw their solidarity with the prisoners. Notice there what it says there, solidarity with Jesus, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. He said Jesus ain't mentioned right there. But Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5 that we'd be persecuted for his namesake. He told us that if, if the world opposed him, we shouldn't think it's going to treat us better than our master, but we're going to receive the same kinds of treatments. It is because of their testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of their solidarity with the Lord Jesus Christ as the one and only Lord crucified for the world, risen from the grave, by whom no one can be saved except through him. That message and that identity being solidified together with Christ Jesus tells us will sometimes bring us suffering and hardship and persecution. That's why they were exposed, like Jesus, to public reproach and affliction. Their lives look like that moment where Jesus is nailed to the cross and men mock and spat and whipped. Our lives, if we're faithful to Jesus, Will sometimes look like that. They name the name of Christ and they receive the treatment of Christ in this world. But they stand not only in solidarity with Jesus now, but they stand in solidarity with prisoners too. You see the second part of that verse? And sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. It's solidarity with Jesus and with the suffering that moves these Christians into action. i the key word in verse 34. Compassion. Compassion. You know that in the New Testament... We're told almost nothing about Jesus' internal state, except that he had compassion. You can read the Psalms and and read them in light of Jesus, and you can learn a lot about the emotional makeup of our Lord and his experiences, but when you come to the New Testament, about the only thing you sort of see about Jesus, about the only glimpse you get into the inner workings of Jesus' heart and mind can be summed up in this one word, compassion. He saw Israel like sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. That's why it is such an ugly heresy, an unimaginable oxymoron contradiction, to witness an uncompassionate church. If the church lacks compassion, it lies about Jesus. It proves it's not standing in solidarity with Christ. And you can't stand in solidarity with Christ if you don't stand in solidarity with the suffering. Let me prove that to you from the text. Number one, we see it there. He, they had compassion on those in prison. They were being partners with those who were so treated. They, they entered into the experience of the, of the prisoners there. We know that because just a little bit later, we're told that they suffered the plundering of their possessions. Because in the ancient world, if you went to a jail or someplace like that, you you were having to provide for the person in prison. And oftentimes, crooked guards and whatnot would take your stuff. They were moved with compassion into action. Lisa Rodriguez Watson, wife of a pastor, Matthew Watson, at Christ City Church up here in D.C. She works at the um, Christian Community Development Association. She said something very simply just the other day that stuck with me. She says, sympathy is not solidarity. There are a whole lot of folks who feel sympathy about something, but they're not moved with compassion to enter into the experience and to do something. Far too many of us are convincing ourselves that our sympathy meets the litmus test for compassion. It doesn't. It's great that you're sympathetic, but we're called to more. We're called to partner with those who are suffering here, very clearly in the text, those who are in prison being mistreated. which probably has reference to Christians specifically, but it is not limited to Christians. It has references to any person made in the image of God who is suffering unjustly in prison. So, because sympathy is not solidarity... And compassion is not merely a feeling. We have to display solidarity and compassion locally. You can't display it where you ain't at. There's got to be some proximity. Notice in the text, these early Christians entered the prisons with the prisoners and entered the suffering with the sufferings. The entirety of this paragraph takes place on a local level, not on Twitter, not on Facebook not merely as a matter of talk, but actually in the prison, with the prisoner. I've quoted this before, but this seems really relevant again. Former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, champion of human rights, she chaired the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And after they had drafted that declaration, she was asked this question by a reporter. says, where after all do do universal human rights begin? And this was her answer. In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on the maps of the world. Such are the places where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights, or we might say, unless this kind of compassion has meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. That's why you want to come this afternoon to that training at the library. Because unless we are compassionate and merciful to our children and our brothers and sisters in our church family who've experienced abuse, We're not really being compassionate in some nameless, faceless other place. What good is it to talk like a lion in public and squeak like a mouse in private? The old gospel singers used to say, we want to sweep around our own front door before we sweep around somebody else's. So, so, justice, justice compassion, compassion, mercy, husbands, must begin with your wives. You can't be a civil rights advocate or a justice attorney or a community organizer and bring justice in the community. And you mean and cantankerous and stingy and cold and loveless at home. Compassion and justice have to begin with our the children we're raising. Whether our children or our grandchildren or nieces and nephews. We're not child advocates at some professional organization downtown. If we're not child advocates at dinner time and bedtime? Treating our kids fairly and mercifully, apologizing when we have been cruel to them? The Spirit has convicted us of that. Providing for their needs as we are required to do biblically? We can't neglect children at home and champion them in public. Starts in these small places. And we work our way out from there. Which is where I want to raise some application questions. I want to come back to that issue of upstream, midstream, downstream. We want to put this into practice. We don't want to look into the mirror and forget what we saw. And we don't all have the same callings. We don't all run in the same lanes. But, but we want to we think about where we might fit in. So here are a couple of things to think about. Number one, we might begin upstream with, with policy and advocacy. Beloved, we will not change mass incarceration if we do not have policy change and attitude change. So some of us have got to work at that level. All of us are commanded to pray for those in authority in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So every Christian in this room should have somewhere on their prayer list Mayor Muriel Bowser and, and everybody who's a part of the D.C. City Council and, yes, President Donald Trump and everybody in his cabinet and every congressional person. You don't have time to pray for all the congressmen by name, but you can pray for congressmen and presidents and mayors. In fact, we're in sin if we don't because 1 Timothy 2 commands us to. So, we should be praying earnest prayers, and that might require us to pray that the Lord would help us, help our own hearts as we're praying for a particular persons. But then we should encourage our politicians. Come to the, the, the Christian Legal Aid panel discussion and, and hear people on the left on the right, the, the Cory Bookers on one side and the Tim Scotts on the other side. This is, this is actually an issue that has a fair amount of bipartisan resonance. This is not a a politically partisan issue for a lot of our elected officials. You know they need encouragement to stand up and do what's right. Write to your elected official. Write to somebody else's elected official. And encourage them. Say, I'm praying for you. I appreciate you standing for what's right. And when you sometimes hear the loud voices of people who are calling for the wrong things, I'm praying for you that you won't faint. But that you'll stand and continue that work. Let's let our officials hear our voices and let us advocate for a return to something like community policing. One of the most significant drivers of, of this dramatic increase in incarceration is the shift from community models of policing to a militarized police force. The militarization of local police departments and the mindset that comes along with that is not productive of things like good community police relationships. There used to be a time when police officers walked a beat and knew the neighbors and had relationships. And that was preventative of so many things and encouraging of so many positive things. Well, you maybe you should advocate for a return to that. Get away from stop and frisk and jump outs and military weaponry into to a truer notion of protect and serve or we should advocate for an end to zero-tolerance policies and the adoption in schools of restorative justice models. It's not helping folks to kick kids out of school. It's not helping anybody to do that, especially for an overwhelmingly high number of minor infractions. But think of how a restorative justice model, which would take those students who perhaps had gotten into some tiff, sit them down with teachers and parents, work through sort of conflict resolution skills, work through restoring things that have been broken and mending relationships. Think about how that process actually makes our schools safer, keeps our kids in school, and equips them for skills they're going to need for the rest of their life. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you, for example, wish you had learned some conflict resolution skills before you got married? I said, don't raise your hand, brother. you going home in trouble all by yourself, brother. <laughs> ain't embarrassed. There's a more humane way to make our schools safe. Or midstream. These are by way of example. You don't have to do, everybody doesn't have to do all the same things. You need to use Christian freedom and and know your own gifts and burdens, but consider getting involved in some form of ministry inside jails and prisons. Let's literally follow Hebrews 10. Some of us need to join Alex Cook as he goes regularly to the jails over in Alexandria, by the way, which houses a lot of inmates from D.C., all right? We need teams of folks teaching the Bible and doing evangelism in in in-jail settings. Or or perhaps some of you will want to start uh, at at ARC an angel tree ministry, befriending the children and families of incarcerated persons and delivering gifts at Christmas time, or mentoring those children. There are many ways for us to do this. Maybe you want to start something altogether new. What can we do to serve those who are already in prison and then downstream? when they are returning to citizenship. We need policy change there, too. We also need practical help there, too. The elders the other night agreed to continue working with Flourish Now. We want to, if the Lord will bless it, we want to sort of pull off at least two job fairs a year, a spring and a fall job fair. And we have some ideas about how to be more effective at pairing employers who will hire returning citizens with those returning citizens. Or maybe you're a business owner here, and you don't need a job fair. You might want to pray and consider if The Lord would have you hire someone with a criminal background. Give them opportunity to get back on their feet. Because here's the deal, beloved. This is, this is the, the bottom line of mass incarceration and all this good stuff. We used to think that when a person had done his time, they had paid their cost. They had paid, their, they had paid back society. We still punishing people long after They are out of prison. Discrimination in terms of employment, can't vote, not eligible for any government benefits like housing assistance or or food assistance, on and on and on the list goes. We have disenfranchised these people in a way that is cruel and unusual punishment and is not justice because it's not the right decision for the right person at the right degree. We want to work on that as Christians because of what this scripture calls us to. Number four, the church church new sacrifice. Speeding on here. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. When the early church stood in solidarity with Jesus and with with imprisoned brothers and sisters, it cost them something. They had their property plundered or stolen from them. As I just said a moment ago, this is one of the features of, of our sort of complex of policies that we call mass incarceration, with the seizing of property. Even the property of people who did not commit the crime, but, but might have in some way been associated with the person. The taking of house or, or uh, of cars and, and other kinds of possessions. Now, now, think about this. You're over-policing a poor community, a brown, black community. You arrest someone for simple possession. They're in the car of a friend. You not only arrest that person for simple possession, but you take the car of the friend who now can't get to work, who can't perhaps get their children to school or to a a, a doctor's appointment, who now doesn't have money to get their car out of the impound. The thing just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating. We are burying people beneath an unjust burden because we have taught ourselves an attitude and we have enacted policies Designed to do that. And we need to repent. Especially if we are Christians. And we need to advocate for those who are so broken. Because here's the attitude that we need. Notice there. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Solidarity was more important than sacrifice to them. And the reason solidarity was more valuable than sacrifice, because notice now, they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Where'd they get that idea? Got it from Jesus. Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 40. Jesus there is telling the story about the sheep and the goats and the, and the final judgment. And he says the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." Then he gives this explanation for why they get that kingdom. He says, "For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was..." Sick, and you visited me. Get this: I was in prison, and you came to me. And they were like, "Boss, when we do that?" And Jesus says, "As much as you did this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me." Or maybe they're thinking about Jesus in Luke nine twenty-three to twenty-seven, when he says, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but..." Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? Then Jesus says this in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy, and of the holy angels. You see what he's saying there? Pick up your cross and follow me. Do not be ashamed of being in solidarity with me, which he defines in Matthew uh, 25 in part as visiting those who are in prison because you're going to have a great and eternal reward. The early Christians understood that standing with Jesus and standing with an invisible Savior meant standing with imprisoned saints as they did this to the least of the brothers, they were doing it to Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. We're not merely talking about going into prisons to be with the prisoners. We're talking about going into prisons to be with Jesus. You don't only meet Jesus when you gather at church. You meet Jesus in the face of people who are left out and broken and marginalized. We need to go meet Jesus, and we need to go happily, even if it costs us. Which brings us to our final thing. The church knew how to strive. Verses 35 and 36, specifically striving toward the possession or the reward that was to come in glory. Jesus says there in verse 35, Therefore now, Because of this kingdom, this better possession, and this better reward. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We might summarize verse 35 by saying this, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your trust in Jesus. Do not give up on Christ. Do not give up on Christianity. Do not give up on the church. Continuing in the faith has, notice here, a great reward, but we must continue. This is what the Apostle Paul or Apostle John says in 1st John chapter 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes, present continuous tense, the one who believes and keeps on believing that Jesus is the Son of God. We must strive or continue in the confidence or the faith if we want the great reward of that day when Jesus comes. Now, pastorally, what this means is the orientation of any movement to bring justice to the criminal justice system and the community, that orientation is not finally to this world. It's not. It is not finally to the injustices of this world. Those things are penultimate. They are important, but not the ultimate important thing. The ultimate reality that we are seeking is that better abiding possession that is to come. Heaven is what we are oriented to. And it's that orientation to heaven that makes us earthly useful. Don't get it twisted. You know the cliche. Don't be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. This text says the only way to be of earthly good is to be properly heavenly minded because that's what causes us to give up our possessions. That's what causes us to happily um, suffer the plundering of our things in order to identify with with the broken and the marginalized because we have a better inheritance to come. You know why people don't do prison ministry? They got too much stuff. You know why people don't do prison ministry? They got too many things to do with their time. You know why people don't do prison ministry or care for prisoners or often jobs? It's because we're hugging all that stuff and all that time and we want to give it up for fear that that's the good stuff. It's not. You have a better possession and a more enduring possession that is kept for you by the power of God, shielded by faith, Peter says. Look to that debt. Look to that reward. And then you'll find yourself increasingly free, and I will find myself increasingly free to enter into this calling. Stuff is killing the church. It's killing missions. It's killing mercy. It's even killing the message of the gospel because some people are preaching that the gospel is about stuff. It's not. It's not. So, we want to be among those, verse 36, who endure. And we all have need for endurance. Every one of us, to finish the race. And because we have that need to endure until the end, we have a corollary need of each other. Just a little bit earlier, Hebrews 10, around verse 24, 25, the writer there says, Do not forsake assembling together, as is the habit of some, but he says, "Do it more and more as the day of our reward is approaching," and that's how we stir each other up to loving good deeds. Love, if you care about justice, you need to care about the church and your part in it, and our part together, because we need each other, and we need each other to become what God means us to become. We need to endure. It's easy to get cynical when we're talking about things like mass incarceration and injustice. It is. It's easy to get cynical. I feel it sometimes in my own soul. But cynicism lives next door to unbelief. And unbelief is a neighbor to inaction. But as people of faith, we're called to live next door to hope. And it's hope of a better possession that propels us into action. The main way for us to avoid discouragement and learn to do justice is to do it together with hope in Christ. We won't likely see all the crooked places made straight in our day, the world is falling. That fallenness carries with it a brokenness. The brokenness often gets multiplied in fragile communities. Those communities are most often or often made fragile by policies and practices and attitudes that target them unjustly. Fixing all of that will require the return of Jesus. However, we can make a difference in our generation we can make an impact on lives and communities and on government the impact will not be complete will not be a complete fix it will not be the delivery of the full kingdom of god the complete fix happens when jesus returns but the impact can be real and meaningful and that impact will produce for us this text says a great reward When Jesus comes, as Baroness Cox has put it, we cannot do everything, but we must not do nothing. ARC, do not throw away your confidence. Let us endure with hope until we receive the prize. Let's pray together.